You're listening to Fair Play on justicenews.net. Welcome to Fair Play on justicenews.net. I'm your host, Imran Siddiqui. John Ortiz Keel was charged with the murder of Rose Larner in 1997. Her family reported her missing sometime in December 1993. About two and a half years later, Bill Brown, the younger brother of John's friend, fearing that police were close to making an arrest in the case, confessed that he was present when John Kehoe allegedly killed Rose and that he helped to conceal the body. But he denied that he took part in the killing. In exchange for his testimony against John, he was charged as an accessory after the fact. Bill Brown, the only eyewitness to the crime, served as the prosecution's main witness. John testified in his own defense two accounts of events leading up to the killing were similar in many ways, but John testified that he left Bill and Rose alone and that Bill Brown had killed her when she refused to have sex with him after multiple requests throughout the day. Bill Brown testified that John killed Rose because she was John's old girlfriend. She was obsessed with John and interfered with his other relationships, and she had damaged his truck on more than one occasion. Bill Brown further testified to John killed Rose while he watched. Together they disposed of the body, and the allegation is that it was a process that involved mutilation, incineration, cannibalism, and burial. And today we're speaking with John Artis Keogh from Michigan, and he's live with us from the prison. Thank you for joining me, John. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate your time because uh, it's really tough uh, to give interviews from the prison, and I understand the kind of things that you go through, so I, I really appreciate your time on this. Yeah, well, I appreciate you for having me, and uh, I know it's difficult because that's, it's designed to be difficult because they don't want us to get our voice out and reveal uh, circumstances that transpired to put us here. What I was hoping to know is exactly what happened that day from your mouth so that we can lay out a scenario that's in some kind of a sequence so that we can, you know, it will help us in 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 a, in a way to put the story together uh, and uh, find out. So I'm going to do a memory recall with you. If you could just go back in time, it's going to be tough because we're talking about a pretty uh, tough day yeah. that occurred uh, for a lot of people. And a pretty painful day. So, but what I would request you is that you go back in time, and you tell me and the audience what exactly happened prior to that event. All right. Well, we'll have to start by going back to uh, 1993 and who I was in 1993. Uh, you know, I had returned from Florida. I went to college in uh, Florida, and I had returned to Michigan after I dropped out of college. But I was still an aspiring rapper and uh, producer. So I was, I was, that was what I was focused on at that time. And, you know, I was uh, kind of like a, a local celebrity at the time as far as doing shows and producing rap tapes and, uh, uh, traveling around Michigan in the Midwest, and uh, but at, also at that time I was selling a lot of marijuana, and I was selling marijuana to fund everything I was doing 
as far as being uh, an aspiring rapper. You know, I'd pay for my studio time with the money I made from selling marijuana, and that's how I funded all my transportation to get around. And uh, so the night this happened, uh, I was selling marijuana that night, and uh, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, his little brother wanted to ride with me. Now, his little brother was a guy by the name of Billy Brown. And I, uh, Billy had paged me and told me that he wanted to ride around with me, so I went and picked him up. And uh, we were going to Grand Rapids to sell some marijuana to my brother. Now, my brother went to college at Ferris State University, which is up north in Michigan. So the halfway point between Lansing and Ferris State was Grand Rapids. So he'd come down to Grand Rapids, and I'd drive up to Grand Rapids and then I'd give him a couple pounds of marijuana and he'd take it to college and that's how he he basically uh, paid his way through school. So that day I picked up Billy and uh, he had a, a girl he wanted to pick up to ride with us. So her name was Shelly. So we went and picked up Shelly and the whole time on the ride it takes about an hour to get there from Lansing. We, uh, we went up there and uh, he was trying to hit on Shelly but Shelly wasn't trying to hear anything that Billy was saying, was basically blowing him off, and we sold the marijuana to my brother. Uh, on our way back down, Billy got upset that uh, Shelly didn't want to sleep with him, so he, he wanted to be taken home. So he you know, basically said, look, take me home. She's not doing anything. So I went to drop him off, and when I dropped him off, Rose was there. Now, Rose, uh, everyone says, you know, refers to Rose as my girlfriend, but really Rose was one of the homegirls you know she was one of the girls that would hang out with me and my friends and uh, you know we'd party together and sometimes uh, she'd go with us when we went to uh, shows or concerts and you know she was just uh, one of the girls that liked to hang around so she saw me in the truck with uh, Shelly and she was upset that she wasn't with me and uh, she tried to pick a fight with Shelly so this is when I was dropping off Billy at his house. So I didn't want to, uh, uh, anything to happen there. Like I didn't want him fighting or anything. So I just took off. I left. So I went to take Shelly home. But while I was going to drop her off, uh, my pager started blowing up, which means Billy was paging me uh, nonstop. So I pulled over to a gas station and called him back to see what he wanted. Now, he was still revved up from the night trying to hit on Shelly, so he wanted to sleep with Rose. All right. So he told me that he had convinced Rose that if I came back and had sex with Rose, that Rose said that she would have sex with Billy too. Now this isn't anything unusual because me and several of my friends, you know, we we party with Rose and, you know, she, she slept with all of us, so it, it wasn't anything that was unusual. But I didn't want to come back. But Billy begged me, come back, you know, uh, we can party. If she, if you don't come back, she's not going to do it. So basically he ended up convincing me to come back, and I ended up coming back to his house. And I picked up Billy, and I picked up Rose. We uh, were in my brother's truck at the time. He had my car, I had his truck, and we were just driving around, smoking weed, listening to the radio. And eventually Rose and I uh, started having sex pulled over and uh, we were out in the country. We had drove out of the city and we were just driving down country roads. And We pulled over and uh, Rose and I began having sex. Now while we were having sex, uh, 
Billy was attempting to fondle her and, and touch on her, and she was, you know, basically telling him, no, nah, get off me, you know. So I ended up pulling Rose out of the truck, and, you know, we are continuing to have sex out You have one minute remaining. And while we were having, uh, trying to have sex, you know, Billy tried to insert himself in, in that, and she ended up biting his leg to get him away from her. So I ended up pulling her completely out of the picture, and we went to the back of the truck and finished doing what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Now, after that was done, uh, it, it was late at night. It was like 3 in the morning, 4 in the morning by then. So we were tired, and we were trying to decide uh, what we were going to do and where we were going to go. So I had my brother's truck, and he had a key to my grandparents' house on his keychain. So I said, well, uh, we're close to my grandparents' house. So let's just go there. Now, they were in Arizona for the winter because they, they live in Michigan, but they also had a house in Arizona where they lived during the, the winter. So we ended up going there because I had the key, and we got to the house, and uh, I was kind of tired, so uh, I ended up taking a, a little nap. I kind of fell out for a while, and Billy, he had some cocaine because uh, he had had it the whole night, and uh, Rose wanted to do, do some cocaine because Rose liked to do cocaine, and they started tooting a few lines, and I kind of fell out for a little bit, crashed, and when I woke up, uh, Billy was sitting on the ground, and he was kind of, he looked upset, and Rose was there, and she wanted to fool around some more, so I went to the bathroom uh, after I woke up, and while I was in the bathroom, uh, I noticed the liquor in the liquor cabinet, so I pulled out uh, some uh, some brandy, and we were going to drink a little liquor, and I smoked a blunt, and eventually Rose and I started messing around again, uh, and Billy was watching, and kept asking when it was his turn, but Rose kept pushing him off like, no, nah, just relax. Uh, you know, that's kind of, uh, that's the kind of guy Billy was, you know, he was kind of, you know, full force on it all the time, trying to press the issue, but, uh, she kept pushing him off, telling him, no, 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 and, uh, after Rose and I had, had sex again, we were laying there, and, uh, smoking more weed, and I, I went to get her a towel or something, I went to the, the, laundry room in the basement and while I went to the laundry room to get Rose a towel to kind of clean up uh, Billy came back there and he was high and he was uh, all in my face uh, come on she's not gonna have sex with me while you're here she's just procrastinating and you know Rose and Billy were friends long before I knew either one of them so I didn't think anything of it you know they got They've known each other for years. They got high together all the time. You know, they hung out. So I was basically like, whatever. Look, I'm going to go grab us something to eat, and you two can stay here. And when I come back, we'll go back to Lansing. So I came back out, gave Rose a towel, asked her if she was, you know, good. You know, at this time, Rose was still naked, so I didn't think anything of it. I said, look, I'm going to go grab something to eat. Uh, do you want to come? She said, no, she was fine. Basically, she wanted to stay back and do more cocaine with Billy. So I ended up leaving, and I went to McDonald's to grab something to eat, grab us something to eat. So I went through the drive-thru and uh, parked in the parking lot for a little while while I ate my food, just listened to music. And then I ended up going back to the house. I don't, I can't remember how exactly how long I stayed there. But I went back to the house, and came in the house and when I came into the house that's when uh, Rose was dead you know Billy was high he was looking crazy and I kind of uh, 
blanked out right then. It was like, you know, it was, I didn't know what to do. I, I can't really explain it, uh, but it's like uh, you just lose all your thoughts. Or you don't know what's going on. Now, at that moment, uh, I was young, high, a little buzz still. Uh, Billy, he's my friend's little brother, but my friend at the time was a pretty big drug dealer. And the people they associated with were even bigger drug dealers. And they were all connected, you know, in the, in the city and all the way down into Mexico. And, you know, even though I wasn't a, a major criminal at the time, I was still dabbling in that world because I sold marijuana. So I knew people and I knew the situation. So basically at that moment, I had to make the decision of what I was going to do, you know. Do I help this guy uh, cover this up or do I face consequences if I don't? And at that moment, I made the, the wrong choice to help him cover up what had happened. So we had took Rose and uh, put her in the car and we drove up north because he wanted to go to his property up north. So they had some secluded property up in northern Michigan. It was just out of the way of everything. And we drove up there together and uh, we stopped in Lansing once and he went inside uh, his house and picked up something. I don't know what it was. And he came back out and then we ended up going up to his property up north and uh, we ended up burning Rose's body and that's what we did up north on his property. After that we were close to, uh, not really close, but closer to where my brother went to college so we ended up going to his house where he was at college. And, when we got there, he saw that uh, we had switched cars. We had took my mother's car that was parked down at my grandparents' house. And my brother saw the car, and he, at first he looked at us, and he was like, well, what are you guys up to? And he was like, look, don't even tell me. I don't want to know. So we never said anything to him or, or to his roommates who were all there. There were a lot of them. So uh, Billy had ended up. Uh, crashing and my brother kept saying well where's my truck why do you got this car so I ended up driving the car back to get his truck and and switched the car and brought it back up to uh, to my brother's house and uh, after that we stayed there for a little while and ended up going back to Lansing and, and that was the night of what all of this transpired and from that 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 a bit of from that initial time when I came back into that house, you know, everyone says, well, what happened in this? But, you know, it was, no one really ever said anything. No one really ever spoke about any of this stuff. It was just like, everything was in, implied by what we did. And so there was no, never has been any conversation of, of, of what happened or who told someone what. And, you know, all this stuff was, was buried then. 
and it and it was stayed buried for years, and no one ever spoke about it until 1995, when Billy's brother ended up getting indicted on a federal weed case, and he I think it was 2,000 pounds. Uh, a conspiracy and involved 2,000 pounds. He ended up getting indicted. And that's when everything started coming out because all these guys started catching drug cases and then they all started pointing fingers to get out of their, their drug cases. And that's when everything came to light. Did the DA's office or the prosecutor's office ask you to point fingers? Well, initially they kept... During this whole time, uh, because uh, Billy's kind of a loudmouth, so he was he was constantly telling people, you know, uh, or leaving little in innuendos of what he did. So during this time, detectives were coming to me and they were telling me, "Look, we know you didn't do it. Uh, testify against Billy. Give us a statement, and we'll work out a deal for you." So I kept just telling them, I don't know what you're talking about. For all these years, I kept saying, I don't know what you're talking about. But one thing about the whole situation is, uh, Billy's father was a, a, a local union rep for the UAW. So, you know, they had a little bit of political clout locally in the area. And the prosecutor who was investigating it, his name was Donald Martin from Ingham County and his chief assistant prosecutor is a man by the name of Kim Warren Eady and Kim Warren Eady is married to my stepfather's ex-wife now my stepfather and his ex-wife had a bitter divorce and the, my step siblings were split between our households so two of my, my stepbrother and sister lived with the chief assistant prosecutor and then the other brothers, they lived with my stepfather, but they had, they had moved out of the house by the time, you know, my mother and my stepfather got married. But the divorce between them two was bitter, and she used to try to get him arrested all the time on, on false charges. You know, nothing ever uh, stuck. They'd just come arrest him, bring him in, and they'd release him because she'd just file false charges. Now, her, her husband was the chief assistant prosecutor of the case. So, you know, this was a huge conflict of interest and who would trust, you know, plenty of people have been through bitter divorces now. Would you trust the person you divorced uh, to have power over who they're going to prosecute? Of course not. But this, this is what happened in my case. In one of the interviews, Rose's mom said that you once moved in, you guys are pretty close and you were a couple. I, as far as I remember, that, that's what she said. Yeah, yeah that, that was a narrative they tried to push. Now, you know, I stayed at her house once, twice maybe, you know, just slept over because, you know, we'd be out partying and she'd be like, well, come stay with me. And I, I think I stayed over there once or twice. But that was a huge false narrative they kept pushing. Now, staying over there, crashing at the house once or twice is me moving in, I mean... They got things confused, but that's definitely not what happened. You you never moved in and you were like uh, just laying around, playing with you know a lot of cash in your hands and guns in the house. This never occurred. <laughs> no. I'm I'm sure I had lots of cash on me because I sold marijuana and mm. you know I 
had sold marijuana to Rose's mother because she smoked marijuana too. I basically, everyone I was around, you know, was, because I was in that lifestyle, people I hung around and were around smoked marijuana. So I sold marijuana. And I did carry guns back then. Was it like that you moved into their house and lived with them for some time? Because according to Rose, you were homeless and you, she needed to help you. Yeah, that's that's not the case, not at all. That was just a narrative that the media pushed after, you know, basically all they did was they created this scenario which they were going to use as the case. And the media pushed that scenario. You know, there was never any confirmation or independent investigation. The media never spoke to me, never tried to speak to me, or never looked into any of this stuff. All they did was relayed the information that the prosecutor's office gave them. And that prosecutor was Donald Martin and Chief Assistant Prosecutor Kim Warren Eady. They were the ones that constructed this whole case. So they never really investigated into the case and said, look, this is how we see it. This is how we're going to prosecute it. No, they got Billy. They were going to charge him. So he came forward and was like, look, I'll give you him. Just give me a one-year deal. And they were like, all right. Then they constructed their case around his story. Why didn't you take the deal? Because at that, by the time it got to that, I was so, you know, this was three years this happened. Well, two and a half years prior. Now, in that time, I had went from being a small time just selling a couple pounds of marijuana to I was distributing major marijuana. You know, I was... Uh, I've said before I was selling around 500 pounds per week which was a ton a month and I, I had moved out of Lansing I was living in Chicago and when it got to that point I was so far involved in, in the criminal lifestyle that that wasn't even in my mindset of doing that you left the state and you just moved on with your life yeah yeah I had left the state completely Yeah, because, Bill, because according to some of the statements of uh, Mr. Billy Brown, you were all around him. You were always there keeping an, uh, an eye on him so he doesn't Which speak. Is a yeah, it's a complete lie. It's just more of their false narrative they push. And all of these, this is easily proved that it's a lie because, you know, I, I lived out of state. I moved out of state. They knew I lived out of state. And the people they were associated with It's all you have to do is review the evidence and you'll see the pe people they're associated with. These are major criminals. And, you know, it's all come out since then because they've all been indicted. They've gone to federal prison and it's all in the record now. You're listening to Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. This is Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. Welcome back to Fair Play. I'm your host, Imran Siddiqui, on JusticeNews.net. And today we're speaking with John Ortez Kehoe, who is fighting from inside the prison in Michigan against what he calls his wrongful conviction in 1997 for the killing of Rose Larner. John has spent 25 years behind bars, and they say he has no chance of getting out, no chance of parole. If you don't mind, I'm going to take you back to that night once again. Around. If you could tell us a little bit about your relationship with Rose. All right, yeah. Uh, let me see. I met Rose. 
through Billy. Billy is the one that introduced me to Rose, and uh, Rose knew who I was. Uh, she had, she saw me at a, a show I did at a, a local club in Lansing, and that was the first time uh, she saw me. But I, I didn't remember who she was. I don't even remember meeting her. What year was that? That was '92. I think it was '92, '92 or '93. It was uh, somewhere around there because I, I came back from college in 92 so it had to be late 92 or early 93 so you had known rose for about a year and a half before she died uh, i'd say a year okay yeah you know she when she saw me at the club i didn't meet her or talk to her or know her she just saw me it was when i was doing a, a show because i like i told you i was a local artist and i'd perform at, at clubs and different venues around the state and you know I had a uh, I had tapes in the store that I used to sell this back when they had cassette tapes and I used to sell tapes and I also sold them out of my car out of the trunk of my car and, uh, that's what I was doing so she knew who I was and uh, she convinced Billy to introduce her to me so he called me and you know I ended up that's when I met her all right so you've known Rose for about a year or so and then we go back to the same night. Mm -hmm. So what you were saying? Go ahead. I was going to say the whole, the the time that that I knew Rose, you know, was basically us partying. You know, she was more of a party girl. You know, Rose liked to do drugs and she liked to party. And you know, she partied with me and uh, many of my friends. You know, she was just basically one of the homegirls that, that hung around us. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to remind the listener that, you know, we, uh, this conversation is not an intent to uh, discredit or uh, hurt someone or to attack someone that has passed away who's not here to defend her, uh, herself. And there's not an attack on anyone's family. We just want to bring out the facts. We just want to talk about oh. what occurred here. Yeah, this is no way an attack on Rose. I mean, uh, this is just... Uh... Uh, this information that I'm saying is is information that's you know it's it's in the record. It's, you know, I like Rose. Rose was down. Rose was basically part of the crew. She was always around. I mean, I didn't I did not like Rose. Or you know, she was basically part of the crew. One of the homies. Okay, so going back to that night, you said that you left, and you were at, at McDonald's. So. Yeah, probably there would be people at McDonald's who could verify that you were there. And this is what happened during my trial. Now, during my trial, you know, I told my attorney beforehand what had happened. And uh, if you're going to make an alibi statement during your trial, you have to submit a notice of alibi that gives the prosecution time to check it out. So, you know, I told my attorney where I went. And my attorney was like, well, did you know anyone there and I was like you know I can't remember it was so long ago you know faces I've seen he's like well if you can't if you don't know for sure then you don't know don't say anything and I was like all right well you know I, I think I remember seeing someone there and he was like well if you can't say for sure don't say it because we have to give him a notice of alibi of someone who's seen you and I was like well no one saw me because I went through the drive-thru it'd just be me seeing somebody and you know he was like all right well, while I was on the stand and I was telling this, the prosecutor was like, well, what time did you go? Now, this is, what, two and a half, three years prior. So 
I don't know specifically the time. I can just say the date of who I was there. And he kept pressure and pressure. He was like, well, did you see anyone? You're from that town. You had to have seen someone. And I said, yeah, you know, I think I saw this guy. I didn't say I talked to this guy. I just said I thought I saw him through the window. So they ended up tracking this guy down. And sure enough, he worked on that day that I said I was there. Now, so the prosecutor comes back and says, well, what time were you there? Were you there at 2? I said, I don't know. It was afternoon sometime. I can't remember. It's three years ago. He said, so it was at 2. I said, I, I can't tell you. So when it comes time to give his closing argument and they find out this guy did work there, he says, well, John says he was there at 2 o'clock, and this guy didn't work until 5 o'clock. Well, I didn't say that. You said that, and now you're, you're, you're confusing the jury by telling them the time that you said. But how would I know that he was working two and a half years ago if I wasn't there? And they asked him, well, did you talk to John? He was like, no, I don't remember seeing him coming through. Well, I never said that either. I said, I looked through the window, of course. When you see someone, that doesn't mean that they saw you too. I just looked through and saw this guy working. But they had proof that this happened. But they wanted to they wanted to discredit me by, you know, they, 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 they uh, misconstrued the evidence. Why they, they try to give their own perception of what it was to, to sway the jury in their favor. And that's what happened with that instance. But the but all McDonald's has circuit TV recordings. Uh, I don't. No one pulled those out. I'm sure if they would have tried, I don't know if they did or they didn't. That's what happened with the store. Now, when they said we stopped at at the Myers prior, and uh, you know that was just something that Billy had made up. So during my trial, they tried to. Uh, that was the real issue. They were like, oh, he planned it. He went to the store, which was Myers. He went to store uh, Myers and he bought this stuff, planning to do this. Well. During my trial, I kept saying, no, that never happened. It's ridiculous. You know, first Billy was saying it happened in Grand Rapids, and I got there minutes later, which is impossible because Grand Rapids is hours away from Albion. But I found out after my trial concluded through a Freedom of Information Act that they sent two investigators to Myers, and Myers told them, no, we don't have a video of them coming in. We don't have any sales records of selling anything to them. And we don't even sell what you're saying he bought. Wow. But they withheld that evidence during my trial. And the prosecutor knew he was lying to the jury, knew the, the, the narrative he was pushing was false, but he just did it anyway. And then he withheld the evidence, so I couldn't expose it then. So going back to that night, Bill Brown calls you on your pager, and nobody uh, picked up records of those major communications no, no they didn't even try because this wasn't disputed you know everything leading up to that night nothing is disputed between me and bill brown this is his story too he admits to all of this that it was his idea to call me to get back that he had to convince rose to to this agreement that you know he badgered her and, and eventually she gave in you know this this isn't disputed this is what he says too the only dispute comes to right there at the final end of what happened because he can't dispute it because all of the evidence is pointing to this. But because there's there's no body, there's no no murder weapon, there's nothing, all there is is his story, you know, that's he can make up any story he wants. Yeah, but the problem is that a uh, majority of wrongful convictions are based on false testimony 
and especially with the people who recant testimonies after the fact. Yeah. That used to be a passive way of convicting people. Uh, witness testimony has to be backed up with evidence. I mean, otherwise it's just it's just hearsay. You would think that you know the the horrific accusations would require extraordinary evidence. You know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence to support them. But that's the exact opposite of what happened here, because none of the evidence supports what he says. And all you have to do is look at the evidence. I mean, just take a look at it. That's all I'm asking people to do is just look directly at the evidence. Quit being mesmerized by the story. You know, the story gets you mesmerized so you don't look into the details. But I want people to see the details. I want them to see everything. I'm not the one that's trying to withhold the evidence or keep people from seeing the truth. I want them to see everything, even stuff that makes me look bad. All right, I want you to see that too. But that isn't what the prosecution did. The prosecution withheld evidence. They hid stuff. They didn't want the jury to see everything. They don't want the public to see everything because if they see everything, they're going to see what they did. So that's what I'm trying to do now. I'm trying to expose everything. I want everyone to take a good look at what actually happened. So going back to that night, uh, Bill Brown pages you and you come back and then you guys do what you do and then everyone's chilling out and then you are hungry and you want to go get some food. You don't you don't remember what time was that. You have 1 minute remaining. I just remember that it, it was sometime uh during the day like going into the evening. I say afternoon because you know, when you're living that lifestyle, you usually stay up all night and wake up late. So, when I think afternoon, I think later in the evening, which which is really the evening, but to me at the time would be considered the afternoon. You know, they they make a, a big dispute about that, but even Billy in his testimony said, you know, it was about five or six o'clock p.m. in the afternoon. So that's just what we consider the afternoon was later on in the day. Okay, so it wasn't like late at night. No, no, not at all. All right, so you go, you you grab a bite, and then you come back. What did you see? Well, when I first came into the house, I saw him poking his head out uh, from the bathroom, like looking out, peeping out. And it, it was kind of weird, like you know, what's what's going on? You know, it just didn't it didn't have a good feel. Something didn't seem right. Tell me something, John. Did you kill Rose? No, I didn't. Who do you think did? Well, the only person who was at the house, that was Billy. You're talking about Bill Brown. Yes, Bill Brown. Because right now it's all about, you know, Bill Brown saying that you did it and then you're saying he did it. And uh obviously Rose is not here to tell us what happened. So if you could take us back again to that night. All right. You said that you entered the house and you could see Billy Brown uh peeking at you from the bathroom. So let's t- take us back. All right. Through that day and tell us what happened that evening in December of 1993. Right. When I came through the door, uh the door that led into the house, I came in through the garage and the door opens up and there was a long hallway and the bathroom was to the left. So as I stepped in, I must have startled Billy because he looked out the bathroom. And of course he was he was high and we had been smoking weed and uh drinking alcohol and he'd been doing cocaine and he kind of 
he was he looked kind of shocked and his eyes were wide from the cocaine and uh as i approached the bathroom he first he tried to keep me from going in the bathroom and when i finally got through and looked in that's when i saw rose was laying on the floor and rose was dead was there any blood no there wasn't any blood and one of the things is i don't know specifically what happened so i can't say exactly what happened while i was gone and you know that during all the time of the the investigation and all the time this was a cold case you know that's what they were trying to get me to say well, what happened well you were there we know billy did it just tell us what happened well of course i didn't i didn't cooperate with the police back then and i just kept telling them i didn't know anything but the truth is i don't know what happened while i was gone from the house and we never really spoke about it you know he made comments throughout the years but he never really nothing specific he never laid down exactly what happened while i was gone so to this day i still don't know exactly what happened while i was gone how long was that while you were gone uh i'd say anywhere from a half hour to an hour i'm not sure on the exact time first of all did you kill rose no you were saying bill brown killed rose i'm saying that he was the last one with her and she was dead when i returned to the house okay you were gone for about 30 and 45 minutes so you're saying in the, in the in these 30 45 minutes somebody killed rose yes when you walked in you didn't see any blood no i didn't see any blood what kind of situation did you see rose in she was just she was she was gone you know at first i didn't know if she was just knocked out or something Where was she? But on the bathroom floor. And as soon as I walked into the house, the bathroom's to the left and she was on the floor in the bathroom. Inside the bathroom. Yes. Was she okay? You no, know, and up? then there was No, she was facing down. And then there was a bunch of commotion because I didn't know what to do, so I kind of backed out of the bathroom and then, you know, we kind of jostled around a little bit because he was trying to keep me out of the bathroom at first and then I I left I walked down the hall and uh you know I was just I didn't know what was going on did you and, ask him you know what happened yeah of course but he he didn't say anything he didn't say that he did it no what did he, he say he he never said he he did it or I did this or I did that never yeah but he but man you know I mean these this girl that you guys were just with. I mean you would have some kind of feeling for this girl, right? I mean you see her dead. Yeah. You yeah. would want to grab the guy and shake his ass and ask him what the fuck happened. That's what we were, you know, it was kind of a back and forth like that. Did But you punch was... him, beat him, grab no. him, put him down? No. No, I did. I didn't. You didn't you didn't start screaming at him that why did you kill him? And we were yelling back and forth. We were both screaming at each other. Did you see any any uh anything that he used to kill her? Allegedly? No. No. Okay. No, this all and this all happened. It was it seemed like it was it it couldn't have happened too quick, but it seemed like I don't know, it's just like everything was distorted at the time. 
it's hard to it's hard to say and it's hard to think back to exactly what happened like everyone wants to pin down well exactly what happened but i don't know if you kind of you know if you're kind of in a daze or if i was in a daze or what but it, it, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what was going on and everybody wants to know well you know this that and yeah. the third but until you're in that situation and you live through something like this you don't you know you don't know what it's like to be in that situation yeah you're in a state of shock yeah yeah guaranteed but you, you but you couldn't figure out at that point that he used something or uh, was it a device or was it hands or a wire or how did he kill her I, there's no there was no I, idea I don't to know. figure that out and and that, i have no idea what exactly happened and you know the 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 theory my attorney was trying to uh, put together during the during my trial was he was saying that everything billy was saying who would know this besides the actual killer so you know who would know exactly what happened you know was he saying what happened when he was saying this about me so what you're saying what your attorney was implying was that all these things that he said about you uh could there could be a possibility that he did all these things yeah that's what he was he was he was putting towards the jury because i couldn't say you know i i never came and said well billy did this or billy did that because i can't say those things because i don't know those things and i'm not going to make something up and try to say this stuff about him but what about the stories about what you, allegedly what you did to her you know they're saying dismembering the blood and on top of that cannibalism allegations all that what is all of that Yeah, it's it's all ridiculous. See, these all came from stuff he was saying uh after the fact. You know, he was saying this about himself. He wasn't saying this about me. This all came from police reports of him saying this to other people about himself. So, you know, they even asked me about that. They asked the the detective asked me about this about him. Did he do this? And I told them, "No, this never happened." So when he got the when he got the deal and took and and they gave him the deal and they took his story all they did was allowed him to say oh no that was him that saying it was me you know they let him put everything he said about himself on me and i have all the police reports and you know people testified to this that no that was what he was saying about himself but if you look at the physical evidence the physical evidence proves it didn't happen because they tore up that bathroom from top to bottom they tore up the drain from inside the house to outside the house they pulled out everything and nothing was in that house they didn't find uh luminol didn't test positive uh there was no hair no trace evidence nothing they tore it up scoured it nothing and if he said now, if what he said truly happened they would have found something we all know, know we all know the truth about forensic evidence now and there's no way what he said happened could have happened and they then they wouldn't have found something what about the blood uh on the wall the the speck of blood on the wall yeah outside of the bathroom all right now this was found outside of the bathroom in an area of the house where 
uh, he never said anything happened. I never said anything happened. But it was found directly under a phone, and we were using the phone the whole night, and Rose was using cocaine. Now, isn't it, isn't it possible that that could have been from her nose? Because nothing was ever said that happened by this phone. I don't know. It, it was directly underneath the phone. So what you're saying is that I can't. What you're saying is that she could have died because of an OD of cocaine. Now that is something that he said before. And he panicked, probably. He's told people that before. Yeah, you know, this is something he's told people before too. So when I say that I can't pinpoint what happened, there's so many stories that have been put out. Yeah, but when you saw her, there was no blood. No, there wasn't. So what did you guys do after that? Well, then he came up with this idea. He wanted to take the take her body up to his property up north. And he was saying that uh, he kept talking about how we could go up to his property up north and uh, it wouldn't be a problem. And uh, all we had to do was get up there and he just came up with this whole master plan like he had it laid out and ready to go why did you follow the plan because like I said before right then I had to make the choice now what do I do now do I you know face the consequences of, I mean would I run out the house and then go get the authorities and of course then I'm stuck and they're asking me you know uh, were you involved in this? And now I feel like I'm trapped involved in this, but then I have to face the repercussions from the people he's connected to. And it was like, I just felt like I was stuck in that situation and it, I had no out. But didn't you feel that justice for Rose is needed? Yeah, I'm, but when I was thinking, what's gonna happen to me? You know, I, I chose myself. And then what did you guys do? We picked her up and uh, we put her in a, uh, in a in a rubber barrel, like a, a plastic barrel, and put that in the back seat of a car, my mother's car that was there, because we didn't want to put it in the truck that we arrived in, because that would have been open to everything. So we put it in the back seat of the, uh, the car, and we drove up to his property up north, which was hours away. And then when we got up there. Uh, we built a fire and just put the barrel on top of the fire and put wood over the top of it. And I was still ex I was exhausted by the time we got up there, so we parked the car, and I fell asleep in the car for a while. And by the time I had woke up, the fire was almost completely gone. And he told me I had been asleep for about eight hours. In the car. In the car. And he was he was up all that time. Up, he was still doing cocaine. Up, tending to the fire. And that's why, after the fire went out, and we drove to my brother's house, you know, he finally he finally crashed and fell asleep. And that's when I drove the car back and picked up the truck and brought the truck back up to my brother's house. And what about her belongings that were in? Your grandparents' house, Rose's. You have one minute we, remaining. We threw all all of her belongings. We threw them out the window as we drove. So as we would drive, we'd drive four or five miles and throw something out. Shit. Drive another five or six uh, miles, throw something else out, and it was just gradually over time. 
this doesn't look good. No, it doesn't look good at all. Yeah. And obviously Rose's family, you know, I mean, they're just stuck in it. Yeah, they're stuck. But they deserve the truth. They don't deserve the story they've created. You know, they deserve the truth of what happened that night. They do. Did they uh, offer you any plea deals? Yeah, yeah. They offered me the deal they gave him initially. But I kept telling them I didn't know what happened. And then when I got to trial, they offered me another deal to implicate him again. This is Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. You're listening to Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. Welcome back to Fair Play. I'm your host, Ramon Siddiqui. And today we're speaking with John Ortez Kehoe, who is fighting from inside the prison against what he calls his wrongful conviction in 1997 for the killing of Rose Larner. John has spent 25 years behind bars, and they say he has no chance of parole, and no chance of getting out. And I wanted something you said I wanted to elaborate on when you said that it didn't look good. And I want to say, yeah, I, I know it didn't look good because it wasn't good. Everything that happened wasn't good. And I was wrong, and I know I was wrong for the part I played. But I spent 25 years of my life in prison for the wrong I committed. But they had me in here under a lie. And Billy walked free because of that lie. You know, I want the truth out. I can only pay the price for the crime I committed but that's not what's happening in this case. And justice needs to be served. The public deserves justice. Rose's family deserves justice. And I feel like I deserve justice. Yeah, because uh, if you remember, one of the statements of uh, uh, Bill Brown was that uh, he was saying that allegedly while you were doing all these things to her, he said that you look so professional as if you've done this many times before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was the story he put forward because he was trying to save himself. Of course he's going to paint the most horrific picture he can, but the evidence doesn't support anything he said. So how can you believe his story when the evidence doesn't match up? So basically what you're saying is that none of that thing happened, the dismembering, the blood, the cannibalism and all of that, none of that occurred. None of that. That's that's ridiculous. None of that stuff happened. You saw and, you saw Rose the last time. Yeah. Was her body dismembered and into pieces and stuff like that? No. No. And they have they have evidence proving this didn't happen. But that's not what they want to put out. You know, I, I watch these shows, uh, specifically the forensic file, and I see this detective on the forensic file saying, well, people just don't find bones or human bones in their house. Well, they didn't, because their own experts said they weren't human bones. But that's not the lie the prosecutor told the jury. The prosecutor just went in front of the jury and told a lie. You're talking about the bones that were discovered at... Uh, no, no, not at his property. property. I'm talking about the, the bones they found in the sump pump at the house. They found some tiny, minute bones, and their expert said, in his expert opinion, 
they weren't likely to be human bones. And then they asked, well, did you send them to the, the national expert that they, the, the utmost authority on bones who they, they were working with also? And their expert said, no, I didn't even try because I knew they weren't. Yet the prosecutor told the jury that they were identified by two experts as being human bones. He just flat out lied to the jury. And because he lied to the jury, then the detectives, when they go on these, uh, these shows, like Forensic Files and these other media shows, they put that forth as a fact. They say, oh, these human bones were found in the house when they weren't. You're just lying. You're basing all this on a, a, a flat-out lie. It's just all part of their false narrative they keep pushing. So everyone was everyone is committing perjury. I mean, yeah, that's they don't call it perjury when the uh, when the prosecutors lie to the jury. You know, they're they're immune mm-hmm. from any type of repercussion for lying to the jury. You know, all they get is a slap on the wrist for for doing. So. Yeah, it's called prosecutorial immunity. Yeah, so they can do this and nothing happens to them. But you know, I have the actual transcripts. I have the their their own doctor, he was a forensic anthropologist from Michigan State University who worked with the Michigan State Crime Lab. I have his testimony, and this is what his testimony said. It's in black and white. Anyone can read it. And then anyone can read the prosecutor lying to the jury. I mean, there's no way for them to get around it. It's what was said. Yet, when you go to the media, they're repeating this lie, and the lie is came from the prosecutor. So when you last saw Rose, there was no sign of uh, uh, strangulation in the neck or uh, blood or anything like that? No, I didn't see anything. Nothing. Nothing like that. Did, did you ask him how, how did he die? How did she die? Did I never. Bill? I never asked specifically. No. Like I said, you know, everyone wants to pinpoint down exactly what happened, but you know, this isn't a movie. When stuff like this happens, everyone says what they would have done. But until you're exactly in that position and this stuff happens to you, you don't know what you're going to do. Yeah. And it's hard to say, you know, everyone, well, I would have done this. Well, I would have done that. I would have. Well, you don't know what it's like to feel that pressure and, and when it just hits you. And believe me, it's, it's, it's something totally different from sitting back and just observing it as someone who didn't go through it. So this was something that we never talked about. It was like no one wanted to talk about it. It was taboo to talk about it. Before they offered any plea deals to Bill Brown, are you saying that they offered you the plea deals first to accuse him? Every time the detectives would come and try to speak with me, they would tell me, look, take the deal. Like, it's, the deal is going to be the difference between you spending the rest of your life in prison or you getting a deal and walking away from this. So that's what they would tell me every time they spoke to me. Then when I got to, to my trial, during my trial, before they went to the, before they went to the jury for, the, for them to deliberate, they came back with another deal because they knew Billy was lying and they wanted to get Billy. So they offered me another deal, but that deal was second degree and they wouldn't say how many years they were going to give me. So I was like, no, because you're trying to say something that didn't happen. And they wanted me to pin down something that Billy did. And I told them, I can only tell you that when I came back, she was dead. I can't, I can't 
uh, lie and invent something that happened that I don't know for sure happened, so I'm not going to sit here and lie for you. And basically, that's what they wanted. But when you came back in, did Bill Brown accept that he killed Rose to you? No, it was, he never said, I did this or I did that. Nothing like that. It was what did, basically, what did he say to you? we have to get rid of the body. You know, uh, he said he was fucked up. That was the main thing he kept saying. Oh, I'm fucked up. So there was, you know, and then it was uh, some threats, you know, don't say nothing. Uh, uh, you know, you know what I can do and, you know, just basic stuff like that. But there was no, oh, this is what happened. This is what happened. No, it was nothing like that. And you didn't ask him that, uh, how, how did she die? Yeah, of course I asked what the fuck happened, but he didn't say anything. Okay. Now, you know, there's been a lot of talk about you but uh, we have no idea about uh, Mr. Bill Brown. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, obviously, Rose is not here to tell us about him. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he's listening to the podcast, he can always uh, contact Justice News and we'd love to take his interview. But uh, what can you tell us mm-hmm. uh, about the background of Bill Brown? Well, I can tell you what anyone can find out if they just do a, a little research themselves. I'm, it wasn't long after this this case happened. Well, first you, you can look at his entire criminal record, which is all domestic violence and abuse towards women. That's his whole record. Besides the case he caught, he caught a, a federal case for uh, uh, drugs. I can't remember if it was uh, marijuana and cocaine. I just remember it was a conspiracy case involved with a drug organization that he caught, uh, was it a year or two after uh, I went to prison. But when I got to uh, when I got to quarantine, when they first sent me to prison, I got to Jackson Quarantine, that's where you're processed before you go to a prison. One of the guards came to my cell and told me, your boy did it again. And I, I asked, what are you talking about? Well, Bill had tied a girl up with an electrical cord, and she escaped through the window and was running down the street, and he tracked her down, and was, he was beating her in the middle of the street before the police arrived. And this happened not long after I got sentenced. So his whole record is nothing but domestic violence on women. But this, this is exactly what was said about you, that you used a cord. Are you saying that after you went to prison, Bill Brown was uh, arrested for assaulting a woman? That's exactly what I'm saying. And everyone knows it happened because it was on the news. It was in the newspaper. He got charged with it. Okay, so there's a trajectory here. I mean, this is what he said happened to Rose. Yeah, it's exactly what he said. And you did it. It's, it's exactly what he said. So this article on your, on your blog post, uh, there's an article there. That's not fake news. No, that's anyone can look it up. All you got to do is go into the, the archives. Yeah, I tried to find it, but I couldn't because I think it was scanned and it was a time when, you know, because it was a long time back. So I couldn't find that article. But what you're saying is that that article, I wanted to ask you about that article, that that article raises a lot of questions. And you're saying that there there must be police reports about this, right? Oh, yeah. If there's no article. Yeah, they got the police reports. It's, it was in the Lansing uh, State Journal, and it was on the news. I've want I've wanted to get the footage from the, the local news because it was covered in the local news. After the uh, the the CO told me this happened, 
I called home, and uh, people told me, yeah, they saw it on the news. So, I mean, does that not ring any kind of, like, warning bells that, hang on a second, here we have this individual saying that you did all of that to Rose, and now, a year or two after the fact, we find out that the same kind of thing has happened to another girl who was living with him? And what's crazy is, the the girl he did it to, she took the stand and testified that he had threatened her with scissors, that she once asked him how he killed Rose, and that he beat her repeatedly. This is his M.O. This is what this guy does. This, uh, I don't know why it's not being investigated and being connected to your case. Because they don't want the true story to come out, because then they have to admit they were wrong. They have to admit all these detectives lied that this prosecutor knew he was convicting the wrong man. And what's that going to do to other cases that these cops and this prosecutor was involved with? They don't want to let this out the bag. They want to keep this buried. Yeah, but the problem is that the truth can't be buried. It can't. The truth finds its way. And it will. This is Fair Play on justicenews.net. This is Fair Play on justicenews.net. Welcome back to Fair Play. I'm your host, Imran Siddiqui. And today we're speaking with John Ortez Kehoe, who is fighting from inside the prison in Michigan against what he calls his wrongful conviction in 1997 for the killing of Rose Larner. John has spent 25 years behind bars. They say he has no chance of getting out, no chance of parole. What kind of a role do you think the media played in reporting the truth about your case? Uh, a role they played in reporting the truth. They didn't play any role in reporting the truth. What the media did, the media was simply a, a parrot for the prosecutor. They just reported everything the prosecutor said. And what they did was, uh, it was malicious because they basically took the prosecution story, who was, which was just basically Bill Brown's story, and just repeated it word for word. And what they did, the, the, it was the night before jury deliberations, or the day before jury deliberations, they put out uh, feature stories just word for word of what the prosecution's case was. So basically tainted the entire jury pool with this false narrative. And throughout my whole case, they never once tried to contact me or get information from me for the for the other side of the story because I could have pointed them in the right direction I could have showed them this stuff I've been trying to tell them this for years I've tried to speak with the media but the media wants to continue with this narrative that they put out and the narrative they put out is the narrative the prosecution put forward which is basically Bill Brown's story so this all came from one man who was trying to save himself from being convicted for murder. Why do you think they decided to do that? Because, I mean, there was a lot of hype even before the trial began. I mean, won't that affect the judgment of the jury and the people? What happened to the fact that, that you're innocent until proven guilty? 
Well, it's it's all a sham. It, innocent until proven guilty is an American myth. That doesn't exist. The media, they want to sell newspapers. They want to push their product on TV. They want more viewers. So they're going to push, push the most salacious story they can. My trial was a circus. And everyone was in it for their own bidding. And just like all circuses, it was full of a bunch of clowns. And they all wanted to get paid or, or push their agenda. So they took, they took every shocking story they could get or every shocking tidbit of news, and that's what they put forward. But they never checked anything. No one did an invest, uh, independent investigation. Someone could have looked into it. It would have been so easy just to look at it. So it's like what you're saying is that for the past 25 years, the American media uh, industry and the journalism community is just running with a false positive? Yeah, they're just running with a, a false narrative. It's no one has looked into this stuff. And everyone just keeps, it's an echo chamber. Everyone just keeps repeating the same storyline from prior to my trial, which is Bill Brown's story and no one's looking into it. And it's so easy to look into it. It's so easy to look at the facts. It's not like this stuff is hitting and hidden. It's right there. Just look at the facts. I'm not saying listen to me. I'm saying listen to the facts. Look at the facts. Look at all the facts. It's easy for you to tell who's telling the truth by who's trying to hide the evidence. I want all the evidence to be shown to the public, to the people, to a jury. They're trying to hide evidence. Now, if someone's trying to tell the truth, they want all the evidence out. If someone's trying to lie, they're going to withhold evidence. And that's what the prosecution is doing. And I can prove they're withholding evidence. Look at the hearings I'm having. I'm fighting tooth and nail to get this evidence released. And the system is preventing it. Why are they preventing it? Why do they want to withhold this evidence? Well, that's uh, what we need to find out. Yeah, that's that's what needs to be, needs to be shown. Yeah, another thing that's been coming up a lot, you know, they say you laughed out loud in the courtroom when you heard the verdict, but then when I saw the video of the actual event, it wasn't actually laughing out loud, but it was a laugh. So why did you laugh at the guilty verdict? I, it, it was I was just so frustrated. I mean, I I know I shouldn't have done it, but it was like during the whole trial. I knew what was going on. You know, they, there's evidence that's presented in front of the jury, and then there's, there's evidence that's withheld when the, that the jury's not allowed to see. So I could see everything that they were jockeying and doing these, uh, these maneuvers to keep this evidence from going in front of the jury. So, so I knew the fix was in the whole time. And when the jury came back, I was just so frustrated and just, just defeated. It's, it's, all I could do, I, I didn't know how to act. I didn't, you know, it was like a nervous laugh, or it wasn't, you saw the laugh. It was, I, it, it was wrong, but it wasn't how they try to portray it. And, and they don't show the whole video. You know, they don't show me telling my family and, and people in the, in the, in behind me in the courtroom who were there to support me, telling them, look, they just fucked me. It's like, I, I knew it was coming because I knew the truth. And I could see all the evidence they were, that they were keeping from the jury. I knew the jury wasn't deliberating on all the facts. What kind of a toll does a 
tragedy like this take on individual and their families on both sides of the aisle? It takes a huge toll. I mean, you know, I, I sympathize with Rose's family and, and what they have to go through. And I, I think it's horrible that they have to live with this false narrative too. I mean, they deserve the truth more than anyone. And in my family, what they've gone through having to deal with this, you know, one thing is, uh, you know, no, I come from a family where I'm, I'm the only one who's gone to prison or been in trouble, you know, and they, during this whole, this whole course of events, they were always telling me, look, just go to the police and tell the police the truth. They always told me this. And when they came to my trial and they saw the lies and they knew the lie, that they were lies, and then the media was saying things about them too, that's when they realized that maybe something is, is wrong with our system. You know, they realized that something was wrong with our system because now they were getting put through the ringer too. And it, and it takes something like this to happen to you before you realize that the system is broken. What do you think were the mistakes made here on individual part, on, you know, mistakes made here on their part and on, on your part? Well, I know my biggest mistake. My biggest mistake was that I didn't cooperate. I, sh I should have came forward. I should have just faced whatever I had to face, and I should have came forward. I know it now. You know, I was, I was young back then. I made the wrong decision. I can admit that. And the mistakes on their part are just, they're just egregious. They're just easily spotted. I mean, the prosecution should have been, the prosecutor should have been seeking justice. That's the prosecutor's role is to be unbiased and to seek, seek the truth and seek justice. And that's not what happened in this case. Who do you think should be held accountable for what happened in your case? Well, I, I don't understand why no one is clamoring or the public isn't up in arms about Bill Brown receiving this one-year deal. I mean, why is no one upset about this? Why is no one contacting the Calhoun County Prosecutor's Office and asking about this. You know, that deal was arranged through Ingham County. That was arranged through Donald Martin and the Ingham County Prosecutor's Office. That wasn't Calhoun County's deal. That was Ingham County and Donald E. Martin that had the conflict of interest with Kim Warren Eady. They arranged that deal. And I think the public should be upset. I think Rose's family should be upset. And I think people should be contacting the Calhoun County Prosecutor's Office and asking, why isn't justice being done? Why do you think it's so difficult to get an innocent man out of wrongful imprisonment? Because the state, who is the prosecutor's office and the officers involved, have to admit they were wrong. And the government doesn't admit they're wrong. You know, if they admit they're wrong, then it calls into question every other case they've worked on. I mean, we always see, even in wrongful convictions, you rarely see them point the finger at the prosecutor. You know, it's always, 
oh, this slipped under the cracks, this evidence was withheld, or it was a detective's mistake, or even uh, they put it off on a, on a police officer. But the prosecutor never wants to take the blame because they don't want to show that they knowingly convicted the wrong person because that calls into question all of their prosecutions. And then that calls into question the entire system. And the system doesn't want a spotlight on it. The system doesn't want to expose itself for being broken. So they're going to fight tooth and nail to keep that from being shown to the public. Do you think individuals get proper defense attorneys, public defense attorneys? Oh, no. I'm, my defense attorney was paid. I paid for my uh, defense attorney. But can you believe that my defense attorney didn't call one witness on my behalf? Damn. A case of this magnitude, with these accusations, my attorney didn't call one witness. Why didn't you push him on that? I did. His reply was, no witnesses are the best witnesses. He wanted to just attack the state's case and not present anything. Well, when people were coming forward and telling him, look, I can testify that this, this couldn't have happened, especially people in my family. My family really wanted to testify because things that the prosecution was putting forward and uh, Bill Brown was saying couldn't have happened because he was just making stuff up about the house. You know, my family wanted to come forward and say, look, uh, uh, he said I brought a hose in from outside. Well, this was December, and the house was winterized. There would have been no running water outside, so that couldn't have happened. Wow. Or he got wood from uh, the backyard. Well, my family was like, there's no wood in the backyard. Or he put a knife on the ledge in the shower. Well, there's no ledge in the shower. You know, these were just little bits of information that my family wanted to come forward and testify and say, look, this couldn't have happened. This is how you know. You have one minute remaining. But my defense attorney didn't allow it to happen, and that was a huge mistake. He should have put forth a defense, and he didn't. Yeah, they allowed uh, Bill's family to come forward, but they didn't allow your family. Yeah, it, it was ridiculous. It was all one-sided, and it was a circus. What kind of a role do you think race played in your case? Or or do you think that the U.S. criminal justice system is not racist, it's just biased? Oh, no, of course the U.S. criminal justice system is racist. It was, it was built on racism. And one of the things that happened, this is going to be a shock to you. During my trial, you know, I had been in the, when I first arrived uh, back from Mexico, of course, I was dark and my skin was tan and when I I had been in the county all those months of course I lightened up so I came to trial and I had a suit on my hair had grown back out I was light the prosecutor actually went and got a, a mug shot from when I, I got pulled over for driving without a license and it was in the summer I was dark I was mowing the, the grass I had a lawnmower in the trunk of my car and I didn't have my license so they took me in, took a mugshot, and then released me. At my trial, the prosecutor got a copy of that mugshot and put it up on a giant projector and told the jury, this isn't John Kehoe, this is John Ortiz Kehoe, and had a, had a picture of this mugshot from when I got pulled over after cutting the grass. And of course, I was dark, 
and you know, I looked more Latino, and he was basically telling the jury, "Oh, this isn't him. This is the real Mexican John Ortiz Quijo." It was it was ridiculous. And during their deliberations, he made a giant picture, a cardboard picture, and asked the judge to allow them to take that picture back into the deliberation room so they could look at it while they were deliberating. Now, if that doesn't scream racism, what does? What would you want to say to the world, John? I just want the world to to please look at the evidence. You know, don't just follow blindly the story that's been told, because that story is nothing but a story like a rumor that's been repeated over and over. Look at the facts. Look at the evidence. It's all right there, plain as day. And look at how hard they're fighting to keep the evidence from being brought to light. That right there is going to tell you who's telling the truth. If I'm saying put all the cards on the table, I want you to see everything, and the state and the prosecutor is still saying, no, we're going to hide this evidence, you already know who's telling the truth. Because the person who's telling the truth wants everything out in the light. And that's me. This is Fair Play on JusticeNews.net.